Okay, hello and welcome to episode 28 of Dano Says So. Today's interview has been a long time in coming. Uh, Nancy and I have been in touch about doing it for months. Um, she is an educator. She is a gifted storyteller. And she is the author of I'm Not Holding Your Coat. Uh, Nancy Burreal, thank you for doing this. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Um, yeah, you and I had good cause to talk earlier the, in the year, and I'm glad. It's always nice, nice to not come into these things fully cold. But we would have been in a good position anyway. Once I read the book, right, there were a lot of times where I felt like I was reading about myself, right? And I'd like to kind of talk about those. First off, two Catholic school kids, okay? Um, secondly, uh, our mothers shared a fascination or at least an appreciation for the peculiar human being that is David Bowie, and they caught that through osmosis through us, right? Right. You know, and then there's another one I'll get to after that. But first, let's let's get into the Catholic school kid, kid thing. I know the, you'll know the particular story I'm referring to, but were you a rebel kid? I mean, were you a troublemaker? You know, as much as you could be a rebel in Catholic school, you know, um, in the book, I talk about a situation where they used to make us wait outside for, you know, over an hour on like in a parking lot, essentially, right. and they wouldn't let us into the building, you know, as a teacher now, I totally get that. You know? That's on the East Coast. Is that even on the East Coast in the winter? That's in, in the winter. Yeah. Yes. So sometimes you'd be out there, you know, and it you know, it could be snowing, it could be raining, it could be like whatever, you know, and, and you can go in. And so in sixth grade, I started a petition and, you know, I got everybody to sign it and, and, you know, to try and get into the building. And they, they thought that that was just, you know, the most, I remember them telling me I was incorrigible, incorrigible, incorrigible. I remember that word and I didn't know what it meant in sixth grade. Mm -hmm. And I, but I knew it wasn't good, you know, yeah. and I looked it up and when I get home and, you know, and, and they, so they were pretty angry that I, that, you know, I did that, but that was probably like my first act of rebellion as I got older and, and more empowered. Well, then I was, you know, sort of fighting for, you know, you know, gender equality and things right. like that and standing up to some of the crap that I saw go on. But, you know, my dad was a Marine, so I didn't, you know, and I was terrified of him. So, you know, I wasn't quite the rebel that I, I was going to say that I hope to be, you know, Yeah, I grew up with a very permissive mother. So there's where our paths, you know, single parent, single parent mother who was very permissive. So there's where our paths. Yeah. Be. See, you know, my dad was strict and my mother sort of, you know, if my mother wasn't, you know, backing up with my, what my father said, then she was like sneaking around it with me so that I wouldn't get in trouble, you know, the Catholic school, you know, it's like super oppressive and draconian laws and rules. And I eventually got know, kicked out. I got kicked oh, out. you did? Well, then you know. <laughs> I got kicked out of Catholic high school. I made it through elementary. Yeah, yeah, that's good. That, you know, at least you made it that far. But, you know, I, I got in trouble for wearing transition lenses, you know, because they, okay. they, you'd go outside because we could go outside for lunch and then come back in and then my, I had, and they'd be like screaming at me, take those sunglasses off. And I, like, they're my real glasses. And I'd be stumbling to try and get to my seat, you know, because I couldn't see like stupid crap like that, that they just would get, you know, they would focus on. And, and, um, you know, most importantly, what I didn't like about it was I don't think there were a lot of qualifications for being a teacher. You know, if you wanted to be sure. a teacher, I think you just said, Oh, I'll be a teacher, you know? And so some of the people that I had as teachers, 
you know, they didn't, they didn't have subject content knowledge. They didn't have pedagogy, you know? And so I had a couple of good teachers, but for the most part, you know, they always say there's two kinds of people that become teachers, ones that are inspired by great teachers. And then ones like me who want to be the anti-teacher. We had bad teachers. So we want to change that, you know, for kids coming up. And that's, that's why I was. I'm going to, I'm going to hit you with something that you, you'll either be cool with me doing or you'll, or you'll find it odd, but I want to, I want to analyze something about punk rock books and about books documenting hardcore. And some of them, there are some fairly straight autobiographical books out there and everything else. But by and large, there, there's a lot of oral histories on, you know, 80s and 90s hardcore and punk rock. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of, of, you know, borderline coffee table books that are weighed down by photography. You unashamedly told your personal story at times when it did and didn't relate to punk rock. I don't know if you see it that way. But one of the more powerful yeah. things and that makes it a page turner and that I doubt people see coming is it's very emotionally immediate and very things. I, do, I believe you end one of the cha- the, the one of the chapters, or at least a segment in one of the chapters, with you know yada 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 about all these situations, blah, 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 whatever. I was in love. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and I, I remember I, I took a, I took a coffee break at that point, but I was all fucking rad. Yeah. You know. Yeah, you know, and 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 I never want to be that kind of like navel grazing person, you know, like okay. who thinks that her, you know, her story is like, oh, my story's so profound, I want to tell it, you know. But, you know, I just exactly what I hoped for happened with this book, and that's people mm-hmm. like you, and especially a lot of women told me, you're telling my story, or I see myself in your story, mm-hmm. and that was that was really the main purpose of writing the book, you know was that I knew that a lot of women especially had experiences like mine and our voices were being silenced, you know, mm-hmm. um, to the point where people were saying, you know, women weren't even there, you know? And so it really aggravated me. And, and um, um, you know, I mentioned this before that um, I would write something, you know, like tell a story in one of the hardcore Facebook groups and you know, some guy born in 1985 would be like, oh, no, that didn't happen like that. You're wrong. <laughs> you know? well, like, so here's, fair. well, here's <laughs> an know? interesting thing that people like me should be grateful to you for. Okay, I'm in my 50s. I was not, you know, the Beatles still had a lot of miles in them when I, when I, when I, when I popped, right? Um, but it adjusted my thinking of what the East Coast was like at that time. You know, I was very aware of key, of key, um, women participating in the scene in California, and particularly in the later 80s when I was more involved with things in Northern California, there were even more playing a predominant role. But yeah, with the exception of a few names surrounding maybe the Discord scene, women were invisible to my understanding of punk rock. And that's to my fault, not to, or 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 to the way history is presenting. But, you know, I liked getting a first-person revision. Yeah, that was, you know, that's what I hope to, you know, tell, you know, I was at some pretty groundbreaking cool shows and some pretty crazy shows. You and, some legendary shows. Yeah, you know, and so, you know, I thought, well, let me, let me put this down and document it, you know, while I still remember it and while, you know, the people that could help corroborate it are still around, to, you know, to mm-hmm. help me paint the picture 
and and so that's really what I you know I wanted to do. And memories are fallible, and you know, I I hope I got it right, you know. And I I put like a little disclaimer in the end saying like you know like if I didn't you know I'm sorry. I really did try to fact you know fact check everything, and I worked with an incredible publisher, Bazillion Points, who you know they have a fact checker on staff, and you mm -hmm. know they caught a lot of stuff, you know like you know, talking about a record and then, you know, they'd say, well, that didn't come out until July and you're talking about it in June, you know? And so interesting. Okay. I appreciated that, you know, I appreciated that kind of like check, you know, I wanted it to be as accurate as possible. Yeah. So. Doing the, doing the podcast, I've had people on screen with me informing me that the timeline in my head was wrong. Yeah. You know, I mean, I've, I've thought I was places I wasn't, I've thought I was places a year earlier or a year later than I was. And sure. what, what's fascinating to me, what that speaks to is uh, when you first, you know, started sniffing around this, did you ever imagine it would still be a central part of life 30, 40 years later? No, absolutely yeah, not. Right? No, no. You know, not in my wildest dreams would I ever think that people would be still talking about this. No, yeah. I didn't. Yeah. I thought it was, you know, something that was like a flash and that would be it, you know? But it essentially really, you know, impacted my life in a profound and positive way. And so, you know, when I thought deeply about who I am today, I couldn't help but, you know, draw a straight line right back to punk rock and hardcore. Right, right. Well, I mean, it, it, you know, yeah. To me, to me, to those of us who are really actually boots on the ground, getting something done, involved in the organization of it, I always find it an oddity when somebody steps all the way away. You know, it's still being somehow connected to my life. And that particularly true of people in the 80s. What I, what I don't think people grasp is how much smaller and how much more intense it was at that point. Yeah. And how interconnected it was. That, right. that even like, you know, I never met Sean Stern in person. But we used to talk on the phone all the time. And he was the first interview I ever did. Yeah, in, that's in awesome. He's a great guy, you know. Yeah. In, you know, 1981, 1982, he and I used to talk all the time on the phone late at night and stuff, or it was late at night my time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, he really helped us and, you know, gave us his blessing to replicate his BYO model and everything. So, um, and it wasn't, it wasn't, um, it wasn't strange to pick up the phone and call somebody that you never met, like me buying the SSD Control Kids Will Have Their Say album and reading SSD Wants to Play Your City and calling Al up on the phone, you know? Right. Even though it, was it was really expensive, you know, if you were, you know, I don't know if you, if you were still into the expensive phone call error, but it was expensive to make phone calls back then. And so, you know, you, you had all little kinds of sneaky ways to, <laughs> get around that you know? calling like, cards dialers people's numbers yeah 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 and yeah. I worked at a law firm so like I would try and make calls from there you know that so I wouldn't get in trouble <laughs> my big thing was was printing my fanzines through printing outlets that were not necessarily supposed sure. to be available to me yeah I mean I yeah. and I say that in the book you know I worked at a law firm and we my boyfriend Brian and I would sneak in after hours and and run off the flyers for the show and we had a friend that worked at copy cop and uh you know she would run some off and yeah you know you did what you did you know it's fun we were resourceful you know right. we were resourceful going to your your statement about interconnectedness do you ever encounter this i will be telling stories to certain people and it has to be have to be at least 10 15 years younger for this to really occur 
But if you tell stories about the 1980s, there's so much interconnection and so much overlap and so many names which went on to be much more visible, much better known, much higher profile, or just demonstrated longevity within punk rock. But people kind of side-eye me and think I'm bullshitting because no reason this modest or one human being I know would know, just happen to know all of these same people. Mm-hmm. You know, do you get that where people kind of go, yeah, I get yeah, that a lot. Really? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I do. I get that a lot, you know, and, and I'm lucky because I, I was somehow managed to get in a lot of photographs. Mm-hmm. You know, I had friends that were good photographers. So, you know, if I said I knew, say, Ian, for example, right. People are like, oh, yeah, right. You know, well, here's a picture of, right. you know, of me with Ian. Or if I said I was up front at Black Flag, there's a really great YouTube video out with Black Flag playing in 1982. And you see me right up front, you know. There's some classic Where's Waldo moments in the book. Yeah, Where there'll definitely. be some photo in it. And first I'll be like, why the hell? And then I'll be all, there's the blonde hair. Yeah, there's the blonde hair. See, that was great. Like, I, <laughs> I, I could always find myself because of the blonde hair, you know. But, um, yeah, when, when some, you know, some of the people went on to do, you know, some, some big things, Henry Rollins and stuff, you know, people like, um, and, and I've told this story before, too, that, that I had a friend that was uh, um, a big fan of the dead and Chris Cherokee, who used to sing for cause for alarm was their stage manager. And he helped me get my friends some tickets and my girlfriend who I work with, she's a teacher, totally thought I was shit talking her when I told her the stage manager of, you know, they were like, no way, you know, or even like, you know, beastie boys, you know, like boys were everywhere back in the day, you know? And, and so um, you know, it's kind of fun, you know, sometimes they think you're like name dropping or whatever, you know, you know but I'm trying to remember the context of it, but, but like one that goes even next stratosphere just because they're so revered is when you're talking, I'm, I'm remembering when you're talking about the clash in the book and I yeah. know you didn't get to end up seeing them. Yeah. Let's touch down on that little piece. of interaction. <laughs> yeah. But we, you know, we ran into them because, um, we were in New York and we were, we had tickets to see the show at Bonds and, um, mm-hmm. my brother and I, and my boyfriend, Brian, at the time, we went out to eat at a, an Italian restaurant, you know, somewhere, maybe Soho or something. I didn't, I don't, don't remember New York as much as I do now. Um, and my brother, after we, you know, I paid the bill and my, and there were all these wine bottles on the wall. My brother said, I'm going to take one of those. And I was like, you know, don't you dare, you know, like Catholic schoolgirl, right? You don't mm-hmm. steal, you know, but he just thought, you know, he just thought it'd be funny, you know, and he grabbed it and we ran out and we were running down the street, like laughing so hard. And we literally ran right smack into Topper, Mick, Paul, you know, thank God Joe wasn't there because I probably would have passed out on the sidewalk, you know? And we were so tongue-tied and so amazed, you know, and my brother wanted him to sign the, the bottle, but he could not articulate that request. So he was like, uh, uh, you know, and then Mick just said, thanks a lot, Nate. And they took off and then we just fell on the floor dying, you know, like we just thought that was so cool, <laughs> you know, and, um, you know, we didn't get to see them that night because the fire marshal shut the show down. So at least... We ran into them. Like, yeah, so you ended up getting more. You up, yeah. yeah, you know, it was really cool. You know, I, you always wish that you had a camera back then, you know, like I, I would have loved to, you know, selfie, you know. <laughs> I was horrible about documenting my time on the road, my time on tours, shows that I put on. 
you know, interviews that I did I, using other people's live photography. I'm like, I look at it now and I'm like, you're in that story, fool. You should have documented it. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much I wish I, you know, I'm lucky I have as much as I did as I do because mm. I had a lot of friends that were good photographers, but you know, I wish there was more. Okay. I want to do one more book story. Uh, the book is doing very, very well, but anything I can do to help itself, I want, yes, to, tell, I want to get you. you to want to get you to do the first person on, on, on uh, things that I enjoyed. I won't even give more details than just saying Three Mile Island. <laughs> You're the first person to ask me about that, you know? So, okay. you know, I, I, I go to school in Harrisburg, you know, which is like, it's the, it's the capital of the state, but it's like really quiet and, and there's not a lot happening, at least not that I was privy to when I moved there. So, you know, my roommate and I, she was from my school. We figured out very early on, if we were going to have any fun, we were going to need to make it, you know? And I made some friends off campus there and we heard that Roxy Music was going to play at the Tower Theater and I loved Roxy Music. Mm -hmm. And so I talked to my friend Frank and I was like, you know, let's take the train and go see them, you know? And he was, I'm down, like, let's do it, you know? Now my parents, despite being two hours away, mm -hmm. still had me on a very short leash, you know? They knew every move I was making and I was still terrified of my father, you know? Mm -hmm. So this was like, you know, I was sneaking around. And, and so about, a, uh, you know, the Wednesday before I left on for Friday, I'm watching TV and I see this, you know, nuclear reactor and leak and, you know, and I'm, I'm like, this doesn't sound good to me. You know? I remember, this, I remember it clear as day too. It's one of those, it's one of those, where were you when Elvis died moments, you know, you know, but anyway, not, didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. And, and I did, you know, I was like this, but no one on my campus was talking about it at all. Okay. You know, no authority figures were saying anything. So we jump on the train in Harrisburg and I'm telling you, we go within 400 meters of the, you can see the, you know, the stacks, you know, that's how close the train goes, you know, past the nuclear reactors, you know, and we're like, you know, we're kids. We don't, you know, we're not taking it seriously. As soon as I got to the Tower Theater, my best friend Karen is like, oh my God, you got to call your mother, you know, because my mother was wanting me to evacuate and she couldn't get in touch with me. She didn't know where I was, but she knew Karen would know where I was. And of course okay. she did, you know, so I'm dying because the last, you know, I don't, she's like, you got to call. So, you know, I, I go to a payphone and I call and, you know, I'm begging that my dad doesn't answer, but of course he does. And, um, you know, he was cool. He said, I want you to come home. Just, you know, I didn't have anything with me or anything, you know. And um, so he said, I want you to come home. It, this is bad. You know, this is a nuclear meltdown. And so when he said that, then I worried about my friend Frank. I don't want to send him back to Harrisburg, you know. So I was like, well, Dad, I got my friend with me. You know, he's not a boyfriend. But, and my dad was just like, bring him with you, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and so I did. You know, my, my dad was really cool about that. And, you know, we stayed there the weekend. And, and um, but I was worried, you know, about homework and right. papers I had due and library research I needed to do on campus. And, you know, so I convinced them to let me go back. And then when we did go back, it ended up that, you know, 
school was canceled and almost everybody left except my roommate and me and then the people that lived there locally. So we just partied, the whole, you know, <laughs> we just had like a nuclear reactor, you know, and every time I would get scared about it or think about it, I would just be like, ah, we'll be okay. You know? I love the idea of a nuclear meltdown equating to a snow day. Yeah, exactly. And that's, you know, that's kind of how we took it, you know. And then finally, you know, my, my father sent my brother who had just got his license um, up to get my roommate <laughs> yeah. and, and bring us home. You know, he was like, you're not staying up there. So, you know, we're white knuckling it with my brother who like just had his license for like a day, you know, <laughs> and came home. But, you know, in the end, it all worked out. And it's, you know, it's a wonder. I'm, you know, I always think about how much how much I radioactivity I have in me and, and everything, but right. you know, talk about being at the wrong place at the wrong time for that one. You know, Roxy and, music was incredible though. Well, you know, Roxy music, Roxy music saved you, saved you. Yes, from America's yes, they were incredible that night as they always are. <laughs> okay. So. so here, here's an interesting contrast, but you bring it up Roxy music, right? You kind of talk about coming up on the stadium rock vibe when you were young. Right. Mm -hmm. And if I remember correctly, that kind of evolved into a taste for sort of the early CBs type stuff. And is the, would that be accurate? Yes. Yes. I would definitely say like, you know, at the time I would go see anyone that was playing live. Like I was, mm -hmm. I knew that I was honing my taste, you know, and there were shows that I went mm -hmm. to where I was like, you know, Blue Oyster Cole, you know, like, no, I didn't know. <laughs> you know, and, and just kind of finding my way, you know, uh -huh. but by the time my senior year of high school, I was hanging around with uh, three kids, uh, Pete, Joe, Greg, and they were, you know, they introduced me to the New York Dolls, Patti Smith, Iggy Pop, you know, and then that's when Blondie and that's, you know, I just went full to, to very late, rock. very late in my, in my, in my punk rock life. I don't know what. Maybe I become the world's first 200-year-old punk rocker. But, um, you know, I find that there's a tendency amongst hardcore types in the, in the straight-edge scene, in the just straight hardcore scene, and in the people who know that it all stemmed from punk rock, still to be revisionist about their history, right? I try to avoid that. I have become very fascinated with the early Detroit stuff, with the early CBGB's era stuff, mm -hmm. very after-the-fact obsessed with Debbie Harry in my 50s, right? Yes, so yes. Getting a chance to talk to somebody who didn't skip that or miss that yeah. first time around is exciting for me. I mean, what do you remember about those personalities up close? You know? I mean, you know, I, I, of course, wanted to be Debbie Harry. You know, she was so beautiful and so talented. And, mm -hmm. I, you know, when I saw her, she opened up for Iggy Pop and, and okay. Bowie was the keyboardist, you know. So, like, I'm like, you know, this is so incredible. You know, seeing the Ramones was you know, uh, at University of Pennsylvania, I saw them there mm -hmm. and they were just incredible. You know, Devo, you know, bands like that, right. like I, you know, Pretenders, I've loved all of that. You know, I just thought that that was so great and there was so much energy, but I also liked bands like Led Zeppelin and Queen and Aerosmith too, you know, and that was one thing that when I met Al, you know, mm -hmm. And it was at the height of hardcore, you know? And so I was a little scared to be like, you know, well, this is my, you know, roots. But then, you know, Al, he has like, 
you know, he doesn't give a shit what you think about him and what he mm -hmm. likes. And, you know, two of his favorite bands were like two of my favorite bands, Queen and Cheap Trick, you know? Right. And so, and, you know, he also liked ACDC and, and Aerosmith. And so like when he, when we, when he disclosed that to me and then I, I was like, I have a kindred spirit here, you know? And so that was really powerful for me that, you know, that he had this, you know, kind of similar background of, you know, a love and a lot of rock and roll that I love too, you know? So that was, you know, that was great. And we both, you know, we both still love Cheap Trick. Probably the, you know, maybe even the last concert we went to was Cheap Trick and I got him uh, into the meet and greet, you know? <laughs> so we have great pictures taken with uh, Cheap Trick because he's a huge Rick Nielsen fan and, you know, kind of stalked Rick in Boston. And he even has one of Rick's sweaters um, that Rick gave him. Yeah. So, so yeah, we, you know, I have, I have kind of a wild background, but coming, you know, finding out now that a lot of people had the same kind of, you know, upbringing that I did right. <laughs> musically as well, you know, so that's kind of cool. Yeah. It's, I think about how people misunderstand the eighties and it leaves me wanting to figure out and address how much I misunderstand the seventies. Mm -hmm. You know, because I was I was an elementary school kid, so yeah. Um, that said, us dating ourselves and and, and establishing our dinosaur bona fides, um, I'm impressed to see that hardcore and punk rock are still here. I know that it is different than I understood it coming up. Do you think it is a realistic or even important thing for there to be any real kinship between what goes on in that music now? And for people of earlier generations, I've, I've, as as a musician, I've played shows where the bands where the primary draws were much younger than I I was, and where I've found it odd, and I find that I much more enjoy myself in the twenty one and over world, or in these you know small little caves that we can play. And I, it's only recently that I've started asking other sort of vets of this scene, is it even important to bridge the age gap? Do you think? I mean, that's, you know, that's not my question to answer, you know, if uh, kids, you know, can go and see Agnostic Front and, and connect to that band, even though there's a huge age difference, you know, more, that's wonderful to me, you know, if that, if that's, you know, if kids today can, can enjoy that music, that's great, you know. Um, for me, I sort of aged out of it in 85, you know, I kind of, mm -hmm you know, I kind of just had enough, you know, the, a lot of the bands that I liked had broken up, the scene was getting kind of silly. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so, you know, I moved on and, and, you know, the next band that I liked was Guns N' Roses. Yeah. You know? So, you know, I was a huge, when Gun, Guns N' Roses first, you know, early, early Guns N' Roses stuff, I was like, oh my God, this band is amazing, you know, and they were, you know, don't get, anybody who says they weren't is lying to you, you know, they were incredible in their Appet Appetite days. for Destruction is an exciting listen. Yeah, you know, I mean, and, and live, you know, I saw them a couple times, you know, live at that, you know, at that period early on, and then, and then I remember, you know, almost very quickly when they got to play Boston Garden, and, you know, kept us waiting for like three hours in a snowstorm, mm -hmm. you know, they had already gotten bloated and overproduced and, and were no longer any good, but, but they were great when they were really, you know, and then Rage Against the Machine was a band that I just thought, oh my God, when I heard Rage Against the Machine, I still think that they're one of the greatest bands of it, all time. You that know? goes back to the interconnected thing, which I won't, I won't make this about me, 
But just to an illustration for you, what's funny when you say that, that's an almost universal truth. And they seem to be the most beloved band for people to lift weights to in history and everything else, right? Absolutely, yeah. That genesis is in my little group of 10, 15 people, yeah. you know, and there's, there's intertwined history there. Small went big, Nancy, it just did. Yeah, you know? yeah. And I love that stuff. And, you know, bands like the Deftones and Soundgarden, you know, I liked a lot of bands in the 90s. And then after that, I like, I don't know if it's an age thing or whatever, but, you know, I, I don't think it is because I have friends like my friend Charlie Carroll still listens to music all the time. I don't listen to any new music. Like probably 2000 is when I, that's the cutoff time. Have you ever heard of a band know? called the Murder City Devils? Nope. Okay. Murder City Devils, they, t they sound to me like old Detroit punk rock with, an, with, a, with, you know, with a moog organ thrown in, right? <laughs> and I think I'm somehow informed because I got really addicted to them a few years back and they were all I was listening to and everything else, right? At that point, they had broken up 20 years earlier. That's like a, I'm just trying to relate. To me, that was a hot new band. And they were yeah, already a yeah, cadaver I mean, 20 years. You know, you, yeah, get caught, I, you get caught in your era. I get it. Yeah, I hope that, you know, like, I love that, you know, my students are into music. They listen to music nonstop. I always have to be like, take your earbuds out, take your earbuds out, you know, because they're listening to music constantly. But it's not, you know, it's not this music. They're listening to techno, hip hop, world music, you know, that's what they're listening to. And like, if that speaks to them in the same way that, you know, my musical past spoke to me, like, that's awesome. You know, I'm happy about that. Well, the last thing I will ask you about is in releasing the book, you know, over the last year, I'm imagining you're in touch with a lot of personalities you haven't been in touch with in a long time. And you're probably participating in a lot of conversations of a type that, well, we didn't have social networks. They didn't exist at all back then. But even just a level of debate and everything else that you probably didn't have to worry about for a long time. Has that been, has that been besides the fact that it's great to have the book out, is that a positive experience? Um, yeah, you know, but I, I actually stayed in touch with, um, you know, a, a, a large period of time went by where I didn't talk to my Philly friends. Okay. And then um, maybe... 10 years ago or seven years ago, I had to do um, a presentation, an education thing in, in Philly. And I was like, let's get together, you know? So we had a punk rock reunion and nice. we had so much fun. It was like the high school reunion, you know, that I, mm -hmm. with, with a different set of people, you know, and we had so much fun that we, we did it every year for a while, you know? And, and, um, nice. you know, I was hoping we would have had a big party, um, for that. So I had kept in touch with a lot of people and Ian, you know, would call Al and talk to Al. And when I asked him to help me frame the book, you know, he was instant, like, come on down, you know, Cynthia Conley, I, you know, she, she came up here to do a thing with her book. Um, mm -hmm. And, and I helped her find a place. And so like, I was still kind of in touch with a lot of people that, you know, I, when Fugazi played, um, in, in 93, I guess it was, they stayed at our house, you know? So, I've got to think there's a lot of new voices in your ear though too, yeah? Um, I mean, there's a, lot of new, there's a lot of new female voices in my ear. Okay. There's, a, there's a, a Facebook group that was started called uh, Women in the Pit. And okay. it's, you know, and, and you know, no men allowed, you know, like we, <laughs> you know, we, and, and we talk and share stories and, and some of the women that I 
met in there are, you know, Lori Dawn and Dasha. And, and like these women are, are super talented and nice and, and supportive. Like, you know, the sisters that I, you know, that I wish I had, you know, they're uh-huh. great. So meeting that group of women um, and, and even there's, there's a couple of women from New York hardcore, like right after I left, like Alexa and Stephanie and Daniela page and stuff that yeah. I've become close to. And so I'm, I am really thankful for that sisterhood. That is like, um, to have all those people in one place to talk to and, you know, they're, they're just incredible women and, and, uh, you know, when, when COVID goes away, I want to see what we can do with the, all that female energy that we Good. have, you know? Absolutely should. Yeah. All right. Well, listen, Nancy, this was a pleasure. I'm glad we finally got around to it. Yeah, um, me too. Thank you for having me. I really I would say, I shall it. put this to you. Shall we find an excuse to do another one sometime? Yeah, absolutely. You know me, I'm always down to yak it up. You know, I like to talk. <laughs> all righty, cool. Well, everybody, that was episode 28 with Nancy Brill. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hello everybody, I'm Bruce And I'm Nolan And this is the Corner of Gray Street Podcast As longtime Dave Matthews Band fans We set out to create a podcast To dive deep into the past, present, and future of DMV Not only do we recap and review shows within an ongoing tour but we revisit past shows from throughout the band's history, conduct interviews with a wide variety of guests with ties to DMV, and create unique and exclusive content like our Concerts on the Corner series. Whether you're a fan of the band or just a fan of great music, we think you'll find something you'll enjoy. We can't wait to see you on The Corner of Gray Street.